All right, well, today we're continuing in the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, this is our third week in our series in Timothy, and today we come to 1 Timothy 2, and we're going to look at the entire chapter, verses 1 through 15. I want to thank Ben for preaching in my absence uh, last week. I listened to the message this week and appreciate the good job uh, that he did, and I heard a number of uh, uh, good feedback uh, regarding the message from other people, so we appreciate his uh, faithfulness to serve in that way. Uh, we're going right to the text today, so uh, I'll read, you follow along, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 15. It should be on the screen. You can follow along in your Bible or on your uh, mobile device. So here we go. This is Paul writing to his young protege, Timothy. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time, and for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles." Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modest, uh, modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. And now we come to an especially fun section of the passage. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Okay? For, uh, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So we will get to those last five verses of the chapter uh, before we are finished today, I promise you. But I want to present the message today uh, kind of in the order of priority. I, I want to present the message starting out with what I think we ought to prioritize, the main and the plain aspects of the passage, and then we will get to these five verses that are debatable among sincere Bible-believing Christians. Is that a fair enough way to approach it? Yes, it is. Okay, let's go. Uh, so I want you to keep in mind as we go throughout today and throughout this series, uh, the context of what we're reading. Paul is writing to Timothy. He is writing to him about, uh, at least in large part, about correcting false teaching that has in, uh, influenced the church uh, in Ephesus. And so as we leave chapter one and we go throughout the rest of this book, we, we need to make sure that we're always keeping this context in mind, the things that Paul writes about tie back to chapter one and the concern for false teachers. So, so don't lose hold of that context, that circumstance as we go throughout uh, the series. So, if you remember from the first week of the series, we talked about how the church isn't to be about endless speculation and argument about debatable matters, but the church is to be about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. The church is to be about the gospel of Jesus Christ, good news for a world full of people who are separated from God by their sin. And chapter 2 emphasizes this again. 
As Paul shares with Timothy the concern that is central to the heart of God, Paul shares with Timothy in this letter and shares with us what it is that God wants. We we learned in the first week of this series that God doesn't want people trying to earn their way with him through their own merit. We, We learned previously that he doesn't want his church to be the domain of only intellectuals who love to debate and argue over things where really speculation is the best that can be achieved. God does not want those things. Those are not the things that God desires, but he does want something. In verse four, Paul tells us what God wants. He wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, as we consider the whole council of scripture, There are all kinds of things that you can point to and say, God wants that. But what we see here in 1 Timothy 2 is of central importance. We can never accurately represent the heart of God without keeping this truth front and center in our thinking that what God wants is for all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. George uh, Wizard said this, the end and intent of scripture is to declare that God is benevolent and friendly minded to mankind and that he hath declared that kindness in and through Jesus Christ, his only son. We have to always keep this central in our thinking. God is benevolent toward people. God is friendly minded toward everyone. He wants everyone to be saved. Men, women, boys, and girls, he wants them all to come to saving faith in him. And because that's what God wants, God wants some things from his church. God wants some things from his body. God wants some things from us. Because God wants all people to be saved. There are things that God wants from his church that serve that purpose. And we see those in chapter two. And here's one of the things that God wants from his church because he wants all people to be saved. He wants his church to believe that no one is beyond his grace and to act accordingly. In verse four, Paul writes that God wants all people to be saved. In verse six, he writes that Christ Jesus gave himself a ransom for all people. Now, remember, again, this is a response to the false teachers, some of whom were teaching that only those with superior intellects could be saved. Are you thankful that's not true? A lot of you are saying, well, I'd be okay anyway. I mean, if that was the way it was, I'd be good. But, but, but I think we're all thankful that, that that's not the case on behalf of other people, of course, but we're thankful that that's not uh, the case. Uh, Others uh, were teaching that only those who would strictly follow the Jewish law could be saved. They, both groups, they were crafting a religion of their own making and what they were doing is they were raising barriers to salvation that very few people could scale and, and get over in order to attain salvation. Really, no one can. Paul rejects the false teachers and he emphasized what is true with young Timothy, that God isn't just after people with superior intellects. He does want those people, but he's not just after them. He's not just after people who are really good at following rules, although he is after them, but he's not only after them. 
God is after all people. God wants everyone. Paul's directly refuting the elitist and exclusivist attitudes of the false teachers, and he is declaring with certainty that God wants everybody to be saved. There isn't a man, boy, uh, girl, woman that God doesn't have his sights set on. Every single human being is desired by God. He wants them to be saved. He wants them to come to a knowledge of the truth. There are no undesirable people to God. God wants the rich to be saved. He wants the poor to be saved. He wants the respectable people to be saved. He wants the people of questionable character to be saved. He wants the young to be saved. He wants the old to be saved. He wants the agnostic and the atheist to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants the straight to be saved and he wants the gay to be saved. He wants Republicans to be saved. He wants Democrats to be saved. He wants the far left and the far right to be saved. He wants Donald Trump to be saved. He wants Hillary Clinton to be saved. God even wants the deplorables to be saved. (laughs) There isn't a person alive that God doesn't want for himself. If they are breathing oxygen, God wants them to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Who do you think is beyond God's grace? I mean, we, we usually won't, you know, like actually form that thought or speak that thought, but I think often subconsciously there are people that we have put outside of God's grace. Some of us here today, if we're honest with ourselves, there may be somebody on that list that I just shared that that we have viewed as being beyond God's grace, but God doesn't see it that way. And because God doesn't see it that way, we shouldn't see it that way either. Now, because God wants all people to be saved, that doesn't mean all people are going to be saved. We, we, We have to hold on to this truth as well. The only way to be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul writes, there is one God There is one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all people. God wants all people to be saved, but the only way they're going to be saved is to come through Jesus Christ. And so the first thing God wants from us, because he wants all people to be saved, is that he wants us to believe that no one is beyond his grace and to act accordingly. And then we find something else. Because God wants all people saved, he wants his church to pray for all people to be saved. He he gives us an action to participate in, the action of prayer. Verse 1, I urge then, first of all, the petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Paul urges in light of God's desire for all people to be saved that his church pray. He says that this is a thing that is of first of all importance. First of all, pray. Now now there's been quite a bit made of Paul listing out petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving and Sermons have been done parsing out the differences between each of those things, and 
I think there is some value to that, but that is not the main point that Paul is making. The main point that Paul is making is a simple one. In light of my desire for people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, church, pray for them. Pray for them. First, Paul says, pray for all people. This prayer has to be motivated uh, by God's desire for all people to be saved and for us to pray for the salvation of all people. We have to believe that God loves everybody without distinction. We have to believe that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was on behalf of all people. Do we really believe that? To pray for the salvation of all people, we have to believe that. We, We have to know that God loves everybody. Christ died for everyone, no one is beyond God's grace. And then, as if to really drive this point home, Paul writes, pray for kings and all those in authority. Now, that seems like a basic enough thing to write. But we have to remember something about this. You have to remember that Paul writes this in the context of living under the rule of the Roman emperor Nero, who was a persecutor of the church, an absolute monster who inflicted horrible cruelty on people. So not only is this an admonition to pray for rulers, uh, whether good or evil, but in the context of 1 Timothy 2, it's an emphasis, again, on this fact that no one is to be viewed as beyond God's grace, even someone like Nero. Christians are to pray generally for authorities, whether good or evil, and are to specifically pray for their salvation and their coming to a knowledge of the truth because no one is beyond God's desiring them. No one is beyond God's grace. Now, I believe that's the main intent of Paul's call to to pray for kings and, and authorities, but there is more that we can take from this. He says to pray for kings that we may live, quote, peaceful and quiet. This keeps happening. I don't drink it anyway. Stan, you want this? There you go. I thought Stan might be thirsty. So so there's more that we uh, can take uh, from this. He says to pray, quote, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And uh, Walter Liefeld says of this, we are to pray for those whose decisions affect the environment in which the gospel is to operate. And he notes something that I think is very important for Christians today to take note of, and that is, while it is true that the gospel thrives under tyranny, that is not the ideal to be sought after. So while the gospel will thrive in any environment, and and often if you look throughout history, thrives especially well under tyranny, we do not have any obligation to pray for tyranny. We are okay to pray for national leaders to provide an environment for the open sharing of our faith for leaders who are respectful to our faith. Friends, it is okay to pray for the the sustaining of the religious liberty that we have historically known in the United States to continue. It's okay to pray for that. That is under threat today. And and it's just so perplexing to me. Many Christians seem almost gleeful, almost gleeful at the idea of religious liberty coming, 
into question and, and, and like the idea of facing persecution. But we have no responsibility. We have no obligation to desire persecution or tyranny. We are okay to pray for leaders to be favorable toward us and respectful toward the sharing of the gospel. And I would encourage you to pray for that. If you don't realize that religious liberty is being threatened, you are not paying attention. It is trying to be defined, redefined from religious liberty to freedom of worship, which means what we do here for one hour on Sunday morning. And that is not what it has historically been. So wake up if you think it's not threatened and pray for religious liberty to be preserved. So because God wants all people to be saved, he wants his church to believe that no one is beyond his grace and act accordingly. He wants his church to pray for all people. And he wants his church to be focused on the salvation of all people. It may not immediately be clear what men lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing in verse 8 has to do with God wanting all people to be saved. And it may not immediately be clear what women dressing modestly has to do with God wanting all people to be saved. But both of these things let us know that our actions as believers, as members of Christ's body, are to reflect God's concern that everybody be saved. We are to conduct ourselves in light of what God wants, the salvation of all people. And so here, Paul gives Timothy instruction, guidance on the conduct that should be evident among the believers in their public worship services. What his thought was happening is that when they were supposed to be coming together in public worship to pray for all people, to pray for the salvation of all people, to pray for kings and rulers, the time that was supposed to be devoted to that kind of stuff instead was degenerating into angry arguing over debatable matters. And this was undermining the emphasis that God wanted for his church, and it was providing a bad witness as they became known for their arguing and their divisiveness. Likewise, Paul, uh, Paul's appeal for women to dress modestly in the worship services is also an appeal that their actions reflect God's concern for people to be saved. I, I think most of you probably know this, but it was a revolutionary thing that the early church regarded women as fully human. I mean, I know that's a little jarring to hear in 2016, but both Greek and Jewish culture at that time did not regard women with the dignity due humans created in the image of God. But the church did. The church did. And what a number of scholars think may have been happening here in this church is that the newfound dignity and freedom that women experienced in the Christian church had caused some of them to take their freedoms to the point of being detrimental to the gospel witness of the church. Paul warns them against elaborate hairstyles, gold and pearls and expensive clothing, and encourages them to be known for their inward qualities rather than their outward appearance. What you may not realize is that this kind of dress 
among women at that time, dressing up in these ways with braided hair and gold and pearls and expensive clothing, was regarded in both Jewish and Greek culture as signs of sexual availability. And while it's tough to even get these words to come out of my mouth in our current environment, wifely insubordination. I thought that was funny. I guess no one else does. I don't know what to make of your non-reaction. You, you, you can imagine the detrimental impact it would have to their gospel witness in light of what I've just shared. So effectively, what Paul is saying to the women of the church is, well, to Timothy, uh, to share with uh, the church, is you cannot let your newfound status and freedom cause you to act in ways that are detrimental to your gospel witness. And I might add that both of these admonitions from Paul, don't engage in angry arguing and be modest, have application for the church today. They do. When we argue and quarrel about debatable matters, instead of focusing on the things of primary importance, we're distracted from what God really wants. And when we allow our lives to draw attention more to us than to Christ, you know, that's really the the definition of immodesty. We're failing to live lives focused on the salvation of all people. Now, you're going to have to apply this to your own lives. You know, I'm I'm not going to draw any any real distinct lines for anybody here today. But, But we have to wrestle with these things, friends, because... Modesty is still needed in the church of Jesus Christ. Modesty of all varieties. Modesty in all its forms. Modesty in dress is still appropriate. We need modesty in speech. We need modesty in the possessions we acquire. We have to think through these things. Now in our culture, wearing braided hair, gold pearls, or even clothes that didn't come off the closeout rack which are really the only kind I ever buy, Um, (laughs) those things don't have the same cultural significance for us. So those aren't necessarily the things anymore that we need to be uh, concerned about, although there are still, still ways that we should be concerned about those things, but those aren't really the drivers here. But, But we have to think through, what are we called to? What does modesty require of us? For the sake of our gospel witness, we need to be people who are are modest. We need to be people who reject quarreling and arguing. And what these two things are, are they are examples that point to the larger point, which is that God wants his church to be focused on, to be centrally concerned with the salvation of all people and to act accordingly to conduct themselves accordingly. This is the main and the plain of 1 Timothy 2. God wants all people saved. And because he does, he wants his church to believe no one is beyond his grace. He wants his church to pray for all people. And he wants his church to be so focused on the salvation of all people 
that our actions reflect that concern. These are the main and plain things of 1 Timothy 2. These are the things uh, of main emphasis in this chapter. And these are things that we as Christians should be able to wholeheartedly agree together about as we engage with Paul's writings to Timothy. But there are within this chapter five verses that are not so main and plain. But they are nevertheless a part of Scripture. And as such, I feel a responsibility to talk about them today. And in addition to all of that, they actually touch on a topic that's of fairly significant interest and concern in our culture today. And so I think I would be, you know, kind of unfaithful. Uh, Wouldn't be handling the Word of God well to just skip over it. So even though in some ways it's messing up my sermon, I'm going to, to, to talk about it. So verses 11 through 15. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I don't permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So depending on what kind of church you were raised in and what your own views are, you know, you could be responding right now, darn right, you tell them, Paul. Others of you may be responding, what in the world is that all about? I have, I have never heard such a thing. I did not know this was in the Bible. Well, before I say anything else about this, let me just acknowledge something that really will will influence everything I have to say from this point on. And that is that Bible-believing Christians, sincere, honest, faithful people, have interpreted these verses in a variety of ways. There is a lot of disagreement over how these five verses and, and verses that touch on similar topics elsewhere in the Scripture are to be interpreted. And I will acknowledge at the outset here that there is agreement on one thing, and that is that pretty much nobody knows what Paul means in verse 15. There are ideas that are put forward. It would take me probably 15 minutes just to give you an overview of the different options people put forward. I'm not going to do that today. But, but the reality is nobody has any certainty what verse 15 really uh, is saying. I, I meant to, and I failed to pull them all together, but I wanted to show you the books that I have, that, that just I own, that deal with the topics addressed here in these verses. It's pretty substantial. I think I have like seven or eight books. And you know, that's just a tiny percentage of the books that are available uh, on these topics, all presenting different views, all from sincere uh, Bible-believing Christians. And so here's where I hope we as a church uh, can be in agreement. When you have this much debate among sincere Bible-believing Christians, it has to cause us to approach a topic humbly, not stridently, showing grace for people honestly trying to come to the best interpretations and coming to different ones. And it clues us in when there is this much disagreement among sincere Christians that we are not dealing with with a main and plain topic. 
And because it isn't mean and plain, we can have grace for each other and we can have grace for other Christians. This should not be a topic uh, or an issue to divide over or castigate others as being unfaithful over. I can hardly do this issue justice in such a short time, but I, I want to attempt to give a very brief overview is not even a fair word, but I don't know what else to say, overview of the issues and concerns that I believe lead us to concluding that this is not a main and plain issue. It is not entirely clear what Paul was saying. And so it is okay to have grace for a variety of interpretations. All right? So here's, here's uh, the first thing. The most basic interpretive decision that has to be made here and in other passages throughout the Bible uh, that deal with similar topics is whether or not Paul's instructions are for the specific church that he is writing to, in this case to Timothy on behalf of the church, or whether his instructions apply to all churches in all places at all times. So that's one debate that we have right at the start. Does this apply to that church or does it apply to all churches at all times? And here's the reality. Among people who really love Jesus, who are sincere about their faith, who hold the Bible in very high regard, there is not agreement even on that question. There are people I have immense respect for who have come to different interpretations on that question. Then when you move beyond that, some say, even if it applies to all churches in all places at all times, there are still too many questions for us to be certain what Paul is saying. What type of teaching was Paul forbidding women from engaging in? Was he saying all teaching was off limits? Or was he only saying the authoritative teaching that was necessary in the early church that still had the, uh, still had the gift of the apostles? And folks who make this argument say that, that really that type of teaching isn't being done by anyone today. Likewise, when Paul says women shouldn't assume authority over a man, does he mean that she should never exercise any leadership over a man or does it mean something else? Gordon Fee and many Bible-believing theologians say that the, the word assume is best understood as usurp, where, where someone you know, basically sets themselves up in a position of authority, that someone kind of circumvents the, the, the normal procedure for being placed in a leadership position and they're like clawing and, and, and scratching for their position. You know, they're, they're, they're like placing themselves in a position of authority. And, and so they say that that's what's in view here. And so leadership itself isn't the problem. It is usurping leadership that's the problem. And so from whether it's an admonition for that time and place or all times and places to exactly what type of teaching and authority are in view, there are just a myriad of questions that sincere Bible-believing Christians have come to on this passage and answers they've come to regarding women's roles in the church. At the risk of being a little disjointed here, Gordon, v, uh, Gordon Fee makes the point that there's much stronger language used in 1 Corinthians 11 that deals with women wearing head coverings during worship. Much stronger language there than there is here. Paul goes so far there as to say that the Corinthian church has no other practice, nor do the churches of God. And yet, I don't see any head coverings here today. 
So, here's my view. With all the honest disagreement among sincere Christians, this is simply not something we can be dogmatic about or condemn others over. Some Christian churches limit women's teaching ability within the local church. Some Christian churches do not uh, place women into leadership positions over men, while other churches fully embrace women in all roles of leadership and teaching. If you are interested in this topic, which I'm sensing that you're not, but if you're interested in this topic, uh, I'd, I'd love to give you some books that you can read so you can send me an email and I'll, I'll send you the information or we can engage in a dialogue about it. Um, I'm not going to take any more time on this than the little bit of time I'm, I'm uh, taking here. So if you are interested and you want to dialogue more, you want to read more, you let me know and I'll set you up. But with the limited time that we have available, um, and because this isn't a main and plain issue, I just want to wrap this up by just factually telling you where we are at at VCC on on these topics of women leading and teaching, okay? And, And then we'll pray, and then you can go watch football. So, first of all, we obviously are not a church that believes women must remain silent in the church. I mean, you've already... (laughs) Reconsider position. All right. All right. So so we're obviously not a church that believes women must remain silent uh, in church. My wife leads our worship. We allow her to use her vocal cords in in the service. Uh, Women have shared... Uh, prophetic words here. Uh, Women have shared impressions in the public worship service that God has laid on their heart from time to time. We've had women at various times give announcements. And and so you just look around, there's, it, it should be plainly obvious to anyone that there is a lot of women not being silent going on at Vineyard Pataskala. What about teaching? Women do and really always have taught in a variety of contexts here. Women have led co-ed small groups here where they have uh, taught or at least led discussion. Uh, A woman leads our prayer ministry and teaches men on prayer. Women have taught in our walking with Jesus classes. There are a variety of contexts that women teach here at VCC. Women have shared in the preaching responsibilities on Sunday mornings here. My wife, Michelle, has uh, done that. Tirza Hammond has done that. Patty Werner has done that. Adele Tennant has done that. Just to mention uh, a few, that may be all. Those are the ones that came to my mind. They have all participated in Sunday morning sermons while not delivering the whole message. Now, we have not to this point had a, had a woman be the sole preacher on a Sunday morning, but that doesn't mean it won't ever happen. There is no exclusion to that happening here at VCC. There just, there isn't. And there are a number of reasons that we're not going to come down on the side of excluding women from preaching. And I'll just mention a few here. Number one, even if Paul's instruction was supposed to apply in all times and places, I think it likely that no one today is doing the type of teaching that Paul had in view when he wrote this. Teaching today is only authoritative to the extent that leaders handle the scriptures well. Today, any Christian teacher 
should be encouraging the people who hear them to check what they teach against the Bible. Here's what this means. The Bible is the authority, not the teacher. I'm not the authority. Other Christian teachers, preachers, pastors are not the authority. The Bible is. We have authority only to the extent that we handle the Bible appropriately. The second reason. We know women prophesied in public worship services in the New Testament. They verbally shared prophecies. And some try to draw, you know, kind of real strict distinctions between preaching and prophesying. And I'm certainly ready to acknowledge that there are differences. But I find it unpersuasive that women can prophesy but not teach or preach a message from the scripture because in the church today, both prophecy and preaching are subject to testing and judgment as to their accuracy. And third, there are simply too many good arguments on both sides of the issue, including the side that fully embraces women in preaching roles for me to believe that we as a church should take the most restrictive approach. What about leadership? I've already partially answered this. A woman leads our prayer ministry leading men. A woman leads our worship team leading men. A woman leads our children's ministry leading men. A woman leads our food pantry ministry leading men. So here at VCC, we not only theoretically and theologically approve of women leading and teaching within the church, but it has been our practice throughout our 11 plus years as a church with the one exception that we have not had a woman who has been the sole teacher on Sunday mornings. But that may happen at some point. Now, next week, we're going to consider a very specific leadership role in the church, the role of elder. And and we'll talk about that. But on these specific questions of whether women can teach and lead within the church, including teach and lead men, the answer at VCC is, and really always has been, yes. So here's my appeal to you on this topic. You are free to believe whatever you want to believe. It is a legitimately debatable topic. And we have people here with a variety of views on this topic. But here's what I want you to understand. And and this, I, I, I don't believe this is debatable, friends. This is not a topic to dispute and argue and get angry about. We can have honest discussion. We can enjoy the debate. We can wrestle with the interpretations. But it is not a topic to become angry and argumentative about it just isn't. There is too much honest debate on the topic for that. It is simply not a main and plain topic. So what have we been seeing in 1 Timothy from the very first week? We are not to be people who get the most passionate and the most animated about debatable matters. I mean, that's in large part what Paul has been writing to Timothy about so far in this letter. Instead, what we're supposed to be 
are people who focus on the main and the plain of Scripture, people who want what God wants. That's where our focus is supposed to be. That's the main and the plain of 1 Timothy 2. God wants everyone saved. God wants everyone to come to a knowledge of the truth. And because he does, that's what we're to want. Because he does, we're to believe that no one is beyond his grace. Because he does, we're to pray for all people. And because he does, we're supposed to be people who are so focused on the salvation of all people that it affects the way we act. It affects what we do. Our actions reflect a concern that all people be saved. This is something that we can all agree on. This is our focus. Let's be people who want what God wants. Amen? Amen. All right, let's stand.